First Evers 1. Selfishness I don't recall learning the difficult childhood mandate to share. By age nine or ten, I had a grasp on the give-and-take of toys and the painful sacrifice of a split cookie, but sharing was confined to friends and families. The dentist's office taught me the more nebulous concept of sharing within an anonymous community. The magazine highlights was the staple of the waiting room, particularly the page with the line drawing, camouflaging everyday objects. A pencil would be concealed in the bark of a tree, a bunny or fish in the shape of the clouds. Looking for that bunny, that baseball cap, that teapot, that fish, was the best way to forget that in a few short moments the punitive hygienist would have me spitting blood. What a soul-crushing disappointment it was to discover that a predecessor, probably someone exactly my age, had circled all the hidden items. How could someone be so selfish and spoil the fun for the next anxious kid? Here was my introduction to thinking beyond myself, beyond friends and family, to people I'd never meet or know. I never circled the hidden pictures. 2. Betrayal I had an unruffled childhood, loving parents who never argued, a family of means with a home in an affluent suburb, tennis lessons, sleepaway camp, spring break ski trips, and summer vacations. Life unspooled before me, high school at a boarding school out east, college, perhaps a career, but also knowing that a housewife was an acceptable goal. Things fell apart a little bit when I was 14 and walked into town to buy a pack of dentine. This cinnamon-flavored gum was the official gum of our family. My mother never bought us candy, but did make an exception for dentine, and dentine alone. Bazooka gum was too déclassé, and the other brands, Juicy Fruit or Double Mint, were too large and unladylike. Even better, the cute, chubby pieces of dentine came with a health message. This gum helped my teeth stay white and my breath fresh. So dentine really wasn't in the candy category anyway. I marched into the drugstore clutching my nickel and was stunned when the cashier told me that the price had gone up. Why did the owner suddenly turn on me? I was the epitome of loyalty, always buying my dentine at his store. And why did dentine betray me? I never chewed anything else and looked down on those who did. I scurried across the street to take my business elsewhere, but was again disappointed. What was happening? Were these two stores in cahoots? Something bigger was going on. It slowly dawned on me that I was experiencing the dispassionate grip of inflation. Until then, an abstract concept my father grumbled about. Now it was a chilling reality. If inflation could attack something as lowly as a nickel pack of gum, it must be pervasive, and that must be the reason my father worked so hard. Staying ahead of inflation emerged as a grim goal of the lifetime of work stretching before me. 3. Envy as idyllic as my childhood was, I also lived in a suburb where you could always find someone with a little bit more. Our next-door neighbor, the Reeds, were that family. We were exceptionally close with the Reeds, with kids from each family lining up in age with each other. There was so much traffic between the houses that Mrs. Reed put in a paved path through the muddy woods that separated us. But I always knew they were in a different category. One year we went with them on a train trip to go skiing in New Mexico. Since Mr. Reed ran the Santa Fe Railway, they all rode in the private car reserved for the president. 
My father was a salesman for a printing company. We all went in the sit-up cars. I was standing next to my father looking out the window when the train curved around a sharp bend. Look, up there ahead. That must be the Reed's private car, he said. The good humor man solidified their status. Back in the 1960s, good humor ice cream bars were not available in stores. You could only get them from the good humor man who parked his van at the beach, park, or at other public places. My parents never indulged in a good humor. They considered them a luxury compared to the economy of buying a tub of ice cream. One evening, I was standing with my father in our driveway when I heard the tinkling bell of the ice cream truck. Why would the good humor man come to our dead-end street? Our eyes widened as the truck pulled into the Reed's driveway. Good Lord, he said. The good humor man is making a house call at the Reed's. 4. Failure In my grade school, status was based on grades and athletic ability. I was reasonably athletic and hard-working enough to avoid the visible signs of a loser, at least until 8th grade when the choir emerged as another status symbol. I marched into the tryouts, full of confidence, since I had been repeatedly told, You have such a musical family. The piano teacher thumped away as I sang with great gusto. The music stopped in mid-verse. The teacher said, That's enough, and called in the next student. I suppose that the teacher didn't need to hear the whole song to recognize my obvious talent. I was stunned when I didn't make the choir, since with a handful of exceptions, Kathy Washburn, Emily Clough, Peggy Humber, and Nene Swift, everyone else was in. This failure seeped into my identity, an immutable fact equaling my more visible successes. I could not sing. At one Christmas caroling party, I was pointedly asked, Please don't sing. I saw how much my mother enjoyed her music and how much pleasure she brought to others. And by the way, she was very bright and athletic. This would not be my future. I would not be able to match all her footsteps. 5. Fear Before the days of cable, VHS, or DVD, The Wizard of Oz aired once a year, always on a Sunday afternoon at the end of November and around 5 p.m. Central Time. I'd be horsing around outside, playing in leaf piles, or playing touch football when someone would announce, Hey, isn't The Wizard of Oz on tonight? We'd rush inside, trailing the brisk air into the family room, where we squished together on the couch. The movie scared me. It wasn't the troubling themes of finding your way home or menacing adults who wanted to kill your dog. I had complete faith in Dorothy. In fact, she was a fine role model, a young girl who was a leader with an infectious can-do attitude. My respect for Dorothy blossomed as she moved on down the road. In the sepia world of the Kansas farm, she was helpless, frantic, and casually dismissed. In her fantasy world, she became a better version of herself, formulating and sticking to a plan with a mentoring and equal relationship with men. It was the flying monkeys. They terrified me. In the final third of the movie, the sky darkens with squadrons of flying monkeys sent off to bring Dorothy back alive. This was my cue to skulk into the kitchen and make myself a honey sandwich, not returning until I heard, The witch is dead! It was too nerve-wracking to watch the monkeys drop from the sky, shred the scarecrow, and snatch Dorothy away. This challenge she could not surmount. There was no way she could puzzle her way through these overwhelming odds. Nor could she rely on the non-violent Glinda, whose best weapon was a soothing rain in the poppy fields. 
Dorothy and her pals were doomed. Of course, it didn't help that I was watching the movie at the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis. In our bomb drills at school, we crouched under our flimsy oak desks with our hands over our heads in case the Russians dropped the bomb. We all knew we were doomed. <laughs>